Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. I'm Kate Urquhart from Minneapolis. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. That's the actor Michael Rappaport offering a spirited rendition of a song by A Tribe Called Quest. Rappaport loves tribe so much that he made a documentary about them. But then he found out that Tribe didn't want the movie released. And I was like, you ain't shutting down I'm going to be at Sundance with this movie, playing it, whether it's in the festival or not. You're not stopping me. You're not stopping this movie. I'll hand out DVDs. Don't tell Rappaport what to do. It's Bullseye. This week, Michael Rappaport and a tribe called Quest fight and break up, then make up, kind of, enough to get the movie released. It's called Beats, Rhymes, and Life. And I talked to Werner Herzog about some of the first images ever created, ever. His documentary is called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Two of my favorite interviews from last year, both films out on DVD now. And if you haven't seen these documentaries, you really, really ought to. Plus, I recommend Sly Stone's last hit single, If You Want Me to Stay. And the fake news from Casper Hauser. Let's go. Every week, we like to check in with some of our favorite critics from around the country and see what they think you should be checking out in the world of popular culture. And this week, we are joined by some of our best pals, Keith Phipps and Nathan Rabin from the AV Club in Chicago. Hey, Keith. Hey, Nathan. How you doing? Doing fine, Jesse. Doing fantastic. Nathan, uh, what do you got for us? I have uh, a CD and a DVD combination uh, entitled New in Town by a comedian named John Mulaney, who everybody is raving about. Uh, he's one of the uh, writers on Center Live. He kind of created a character named Stefan uh, that people are love. Nathan, I got to tell you, number one, I love Stefan. That's like my favorite thing in the world. Number two, we love that John Mulaney over here at Bullseye. Yeah, well, rightfully so. And I, you know, had never, I'd kind of heard of him uh, by reputation uh, more so than by his actual work. Uh, and I was overjoyed. Like, I had very, very high expectations. And yeah, there's this just wonderful sense of, uh, of words. He just has this uh, love of a language uh, that comes through in every bit. My brothers and sisters and I had this babysitter named Veronica when we were kids, and I was in love with her. I was in love with Veronica. She would babysit us on Saturday nights. And in my head, when I was a little kid, I thought that Veronica was like 25, 30 years old. I was just talking to my mom the other week. I found out that when I was 10, Veronica was 13. (laughs) So why was she in charge? All she could do was dial the telephone a little better than I could. 13 when I'm 10, that's just like hiring a slightly bigger child. That would be like if you're going out of town for the week and you paid a horse to watch your dog. (laughs) Like, all right, here is the number where we'll be, and here's where we keep the dog food, and you're a horse. (laughs) Why do people do that? People always shush animals. They go, hey, shh, 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 shh. They've never spoken. If you look at the actual subject matter, it's not terribly, terribly new uh, or, 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 or novel. But he has this ability to kind of uh, take this 
old, uh, you know, sort of tired material and kind of instill it with this kind of a sense of wonder uh, and bemusement at the world. You know, sort of great comedians and children are a, a lot alike in that they kind of see things in new ways. Mr. Phipps, what do you got? Uh, my pick is a movie that should be playing uh, near you at this point. It's it's uh, it's Coriolanus. It's it is Ray Fine's adaptation of one of Shakespeare's uh, least loved but but really interesting plays. My lord and husband. These eyes are not the same I wore in Rome. The sorrow that delivers us thus changed makes you think so. Best of my flesh, forgive my tyranny, but do not say for that. Forgive our Romans. It's a really kind of ugly movie about warfare and a man who's only good at war. And the moment he stops being good at war, basically that's his his downfall. And uh, Ray Fiennes kind of plays him as sort of a, a, a warlord uh, savant. And what's interesting about this film um, is it's filmed in Serbia. And a lot of films are, of course, filmed in Eastern Europe. Uh, this one kind of goes all in on that with all this imagery borrowed from the war in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and it's made very immediate and brutal and contemporary uh, by the way he shoots it, which is uh, handheld and low to the ground, almost kind of like a Paul Greengrass movie in some ways. Well, uh, Keith Phipps suggests you head out to theaters and check out Coriolanus, uh, directed by and starring Ray Fiennes. Nathan Rabin says check out John Mulaney's new stand-up comedy special, New in Town, on CD and DVD. Keith, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing your picks on Bullseye. Sure thing, Jesse. Thanks for having us. You can find Keith Phipps and Nathan Rabin at avclub.com. You can also catch them regularly on the AV Club podcast, Reasonable Discussions. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Michael Rappaport. He's, of course, best known as an actor, having worked for some 20-odd years with directors like Woody Allen and Spike Lee. He's also appeared on numerous television programs and in countless other films. But he's on Bullseye today to talk about his directorial debut, a documentary called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. It's the story of one of hip-hop's most significant and storied groups, and I know one of the most significant to Rappaport specifically. Rappaport and I spoke about the film last year. It's out now on DVD, Blu-ray, and available digitally. Let's listen to a classic track from A Tribe Called Quest. Here's Check the Rhyme. Mm. Back in the days on the boulevard, I landed. We used to kick routines and the presence was fitting. It was I, the abstract. And me, the five-footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine? That we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. Okay, you're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. But then grab the microphone. And let your words rip. Now here's a funky introduction of how nice I am. Tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram. I'm like an energizer because you see I last long. My crew is never ever whack because we stand strong. Now if you say my style is whack, I swear you're dead wrong. I slay that body and El Segundo, then push this along. You'll be a fool to reply the fight was not the man. Because you know and I know that you know who I am. A special shout out piece goes out to all my pals, you see. And a middle finger goes for all you punk MCs. Because I love it when you whack MCs. 
she despise me. They get vexed, I will next, but none can test me. I'm just a fly MC who's five for three and very brave. On top remaining, no, I'm painting because I misbehave. I come correct and full of hell of all my disorder. Check. And before I get the butt, the gyms on me, all right? You see, my aura is positive, I don't promote no junk. See, I'm far from a bully and I ain't a punk. Extremity of rhythm, yeah, that's what you heard. So just clean out your ears and just check the word. Check the time, Michael, I, I want to ask you personally yep. what A Tribe Called Quest meant to you in 1989-90 when they came out. And you were you were a, a very young man. You were at an impressionable age. Yeah, there was an excitement about them. Um, their mu- You know, honestly, their first album, to me, when I look back on it now, it, it's kind of like if you're walking around school on lunchtime and you're passing by all these different conversations and one conversation is about this girl who's pretty with a nice ass and, 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 I, and I and I want to meet her. What's her name? Her name's Benita. Um, and then, you know, the, you, you keep walking and then, you know, you, there's a, another conversation about, um, you know, just being, you know, uh, you know, from Queens and, you know, what that means to you. And then there's another, you know, group of conversation going on about safe sex and then there's these other kids that are kind of you know more serious militant kids and they're talking about you know ham and eggs and we don't eat pork and we want to you know take care of our bodies and you know we're, we're conscious and all that stuff you know that first album was like youthful it was very innocent it wasn't contrived it was just colorful and really sort of epitomized what it felt like for me as a 18-year-old growing up in New York City. You know, it just was like, it felt like these kids that you knew. It seems like that humanity is at the core of what they represented, yeah. along, along with the rest of the native tongues, De La Soul notably at the time. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, hip-hop was all about this kind of grand epic scale mm-hmm. of, you know, the kind of rock and roll epic scale of Run DMC, right. or the militant epic scale of Public Enemy, or the super crazy performer, rhymer, Big Daddy Kane, right. epic scale. Right. And there's a big difference between that and a character on the microphone who's like a person, just right. like a, a, like someone that you would see in high school. Right, yeah, they, they were very honest, and they were vulnerable, and, you know, and obviously one of their famous songs is Benita Applebaum, and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to do you and do this to you. It was like, you know, I, I just want to... You know, can I take you out? Can I dance with you? There was a sweetness to it. And, and uh, you know, but there was a, a sexuality to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't over the top. You know, the, the Rolling Stones have Angie and, and the Doors wrote Gloria. Like, you know, like they wrote Benita Applebaum. Michael Rappaport, my guest, he's the director of a new documentary about A Tribe Called Quest. Let's hear a little bit of their first hit, Benita Applebaum. Question the authority. Mm-hmm. 
in in Tribe's career, there was this first album that, as you say, is very kind of. Uh, it's distinguished by its tone, but it's not. Uh, it's not their most coherent, cohesive mm-hmm. album. Mm-hmm. And they came out. They had Benita Applebaum, a sizable hit, um, but it was very difficult for them to imagine what their next record would be. And yeah. In fact, we have a we have a clip from the film. Yep. In which uh, Q-Tip is talking about uh, making their second album, The Low End Theory. Right. After the album came out, the first album was just like, wow, this is really happening. The stakes became high. And then everybody was talking about sophomore jinx. But I never was one for jinx. And, like, I don't believe in none of that. I'm not a superstitious dude. Like Stevie said, if you believe in things that you don't understand, then you're going to suffer. You know what I mean? Like, so I never gave none of that no weight. I'm going to make Low End Theory. Let's hear a little bit of excursions from Low End Theory and A Tribe Called Quest, the subject of my guest Michael Rappaport's new film, which is called Beats, Rhymes, and Life. Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you could find the abstract, listening to hip-hop. My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, well, Daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael. It's all expected. Things are for the looking. If you got the money, Quest is for the bucket. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truck, load of black gold. Listen to the rhymes to get a mental picture of this black man, black woman picture. Why do I say that? Cause I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the music is the proof. And planet on the ground, the act is so together. Gonna fly strong, you need leverage to sever. The unit, yes, the unit, yes, the unit. Do you, do you remember when you first heard Low End Theory? I do exactly remember that. And I don't have a great memory. But it, it, it was a distinct memory. I was in Detroit filming my first movie, Zebrahead, and it was the summer, and the radio was on, and I was like, "What is this?" And then the DJ was like, "That's the new song from Tribe Called Quest," and I was like, "Holy crap!" I mean, it just was like big, full, rich, and then you know, because at the time, to be honest with you, I wasn't like go to the record store and buy album guy. I was the radio, but then I like, yeah, the low end theory came out. I got the tape. Every song on the album was great, and every song was so different, and they were talking about jazz, and there was jazz samples, and Ron Carter. I was like, who the hell is Ron Carter? And the cover art with the girl and the shape, the, the green, black, and red, and it was conscious, but without beating you up over the head. It was just perfection. It was just e- excellence. We got to be a winner all the time. Or pray to a hip-hop crime With the dope raps and dope tracks We move blocks From the fly girlies To the hardest of the rocks Musically the quest Is on the rise We own these excursions So you must realize That continually I'll pop my Zulu If you don't like it Get off the Zulu tip So what can you do In the times which exist You can't fake moves On your brother or your sis But if your sis is a is a jerk leave them both alone and continue with your work whatever it may be in today's society everything is fair at least that's how it seems to me you must be honest and true to the next don't be phony and expect one not to flex especially if you're wrong you have to live by the pen your man is your man then treat him like your friend all it is is the code of the streets so listen to the knowledge being dropped through the beats beats that are hard that are funky They could get your hook Like a crackhead junkie What you gotta do Is know the tribe Is in the sphere The abstract poet Prominent like Shakespeare A Tribe Called Quest Are one of the greatest Hip hop groups Of all time Yep 
Um, there are a lot of other uh, great hip hop groups yep. and artists. You know, there's Eric B and Rakim. There's yep. Outkast. Yep. There's the Wu Tang Clan. There's there's uh, there are you know a dozen or uh, twenty groups that uh, also are monstrously significant. Yeah. Yeah. in the history of hip hop. Yeah. So, what was it specifically about a tribe called Quest that made you want to not only make a film but make you know, this is your first. This is your first directing effort. Like to to make you to transform what you do in your life from being actor into being director. There must have been some specific mm. impetus. The instinct to make this movie came from in 1998. Their last show it was publicized as their last show in New York when they put out the Love Movement. I was at that last show and I said to my girlfriend at the time, "I feel like my parents are getting divorced," and. And I said that night, somebody should do a documentary on a tribe called Quest. Like, you know, you just didn't expect it to end. So what spawned it, I love the music. That that time in my life, hip hop, I knew that those guys are the same age as me. And I knew that, you know, obviously I never wanted to be a, a rapper. I just love the music. But I knew without asking that they listened to the radio and recorded the radio like it was that was gold for me growing up i don't know whether to call it a tool a resource uh uh an alien you know it was a physical presence that was a part of your clique your crew that was the radio first time i remember hearing myself on the radio it was a saturday night i was just waiting i knew that it would come on around 10 because i was I was asking, I was like, what time do you think it'll come on? And it came on. I was like, <laughs> I just like that. I just couldn't believe it. I was stuck, you know. It wasn't, I was just like, I told my mom. So she was like, really? Get out of here. I want to hear it. Oh, I wish your father was here to hear that. You know what I'm saying? So it's crazy. It was a crazy moment, you know. It was crazy. That's Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest talking about hearing himself on the radio for the very first time. I mean, hip-hop and what happened from that golden era of hip-hop, as they like to call it, informs everything about popular culture today. You know, the T-Mobile the girl is standing there with the white kid rapping, and it's not like, what the hell is this? It's not like, you know, like, it's not mockery. It's not like, you know, exploitive. It's like, yeah, there's, of course, there's a T-Mobile girl standing next to the white kid rapping. Well, what the hell is he going to do? Play the electric guitar? No, he's going to rap. You know, Justin Bieber's beatboxing. Of course he's beat by. That's part of the routine now. You know, uh, Beyonce every now and then will, 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 will rhyme. Michelle Obama, you know, is doing the Dougie. Nancy Reagan wasn't doing the Dougie. I mean, <laughs> if, you know, that this is like acceptable, you know, sort the, of part of popular culture. The cult. closest she got was maybe sitting on Mr. T's lap. Exactly. But but do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the hip hop and, and what, what we came from that time is, you it, like, it, it was looked at. In the '80s, you know, if you remember, it was like that was the, that was the inflection point. I mean, the, the early '90s was when it transformed mm -hmm. from a phenomenon, from a subcultural phenomenon to a mass cultural. Absolutely, phenomenon. and it's grown ever since, for better or for worse. More with Michael Rappaport after a break. He's the director of Beats, Rhymes, and Life: The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. 
presenting me Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference, and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Michael Rappaport. We spoke last year about his directorial debut, a documentary called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. That footage that you shot backstage at Rock the Bells was the first footage that you shot on this film. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. Actually, right before I shot, right before Tribe arrived, I did my interview with De La Soul. The scene is, um, if I'm remembering correctly, it's Dave says, um, uh, you ask him. I said, is this a Tropical Course last show? And he said, I hope it is. There's like a pause. And you see pause from Daylight go, you know, like you just said that. And he goes, and I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I hope, I hope, I hope it is. You know, he goes, because, you know, if they're not going to do it and do it right, you know, they should just stop because I don't like being around it. And, you know, and for the fans, you know, it's not genuine because the Tribe Called Quest is about love. And if they're not loving each other, they should just they should just stop. I knew that that would be in the movie because it was so on the money and so truthful and so non-emotionally involved. Like he just stated it. It's the only thing he says in the movie. And um, he just laid it out there. And, you know, and every cut of that of the film that we had, and we had a bunch of them. That was in there. And my producers would be like, why are you, why are you so insistent on having it? You can't hear him. We're going to have to subtitle. I was like, because that is the – him saying that is, is, is spot on. And, 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 you know, him saying that is, is the – it's like the truth is laid out. What was it like for you when you showed up thinking that the documentary you were going to make was going to exclusively be about celebrating this amazing music and the effect that it had on the culture, which is certainly an important part of the documentary. Yeah. But you found uh, you just were dropped into a situation where, um, you know, the members of, uh, uh, of the group were essentially at each other's throats. I mean, literally, they almost fight in the film. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was upsetting. I've been in relationships with people that I love that are fractured. It's hard to go through that. I related to that. And that's why, um, story-wise, I, I, I went to that and, 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 and let that play out. Because all the music stuff and all the, the glory and all the sampling and all the you know impact of their music, that's easy to, to document. They did that. They did the work for me. It's just a matter of piecing it together, picking the right stuff you know, editing it correctly. But to, to, to the story of it, the sort of implosion of the group was more challenging to piece together and to edit and to, and to structure and also very exciting. So a, a Tribe Called Quest has, uh, w- probably you would describe, three c- core members. The yes. two MCs, uh, Q-Tip and Fife Dog, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, the, uh, who is a um, DJ and also sometimes producer. Yep. And this is a story about these three guys, and also the Tribe Called Quest's famous sort of sometimes why right. fourth member, Jerobi. Yeah, that was, a, that was a big surprise. 
and it's hard to put a finger on what his role is in a tribe called Quest because he isn't a vocalist and he's not a producer. Yeah. Um he's he's like there he's like totemic. Yeah. Jerobi's role in this film is he is like a in the group even is like he is a symbol of their relationship with yep. each other. Yep. And and Jerobi, you know, you hear him talking on the first album and you know, he was he was going to rap on the second album. There's verses that he did on on Low End Theory and then he left the group. Um, and you would see him in the first album. It was like he was just kind of awkward looking and odd looking. And then you'd hear rumors like, "Oh yeah, Jerobi's in jail," and Jerobi, uh, he, you know, he's he's uh, you know in a mental hospital. You'd it was like a, a folklore about Jerobi. What happened to Jerobi? Where is Jerobi? Oh, I heard he's he's sick. I heard he's on crack. And and really, you know, like I just thought when I interviewed Jerobi, it was going to answer what the hell happened to Jerobi. Like I, I, I want it to be like a little, a little side thing. Like you know, know you, you do a little segment. Jerobi turned out to become a professional chef. Exactly. I didn't know um, the dynamic and the imp- impact and the importance of his relationship to the group, and I didn't know the the sort of uh, the, the the closeness of, of of him and Fife. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Michael Rappaport. We spoke last year about his directorial debut, a documentary called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. As a filmmaker, I mean, like a lot of documentary filmmakers, you're in a very difficult position, which is that you're making this film about these people. And particularly in the in a music documentary where you need their permission to use their music, even if you have their permission mm-hmm. to shoot them on mm-hmm. camera. Mm-hmm. And that's put you in a very difficult position the last six months or so yeah. as as the group has had lots of contention both among themselves and with you and the film. Yep. The Twitter. Yeah, there was a, there was a Twitter back and forth and there was uh, 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 Ali Shaheed and Q-Tip did an MTV interview with uh, Sway. Yes. Talking... Uh, that was not positive about a lot of things. And then also at the end, they said you should go see the movie. Right. It's very confusing and distorted. And, um, you know, at one point, one of the, uh, one of the producers of the film, uh, accidentally hit reply instead of forward on an email and sent out an email. It was about a dispute over producer credits. Right. And, uh, and this producer that you were working with said, you know, yeah, I don't. I don't want them to be producers. We're gonna. We're gonna f- on this and everything. Yeah, I, think, I believe yeah, I'm yeah. working from memory. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah, 
And, and you know, that, that caused a, a riff, and that was an accident. But I, to this day, I mean, they didn't ask to be producers until December 19th. You know, they were like, we're, we're ready to move forward. We love the final cut of the movie. But Tribe Call Quest and their managers would like producer credits. And I sent an email out, you know, as a very professional, thought-out thought email saying, you know what, I don't think you guys should be producers of the movie because... Number one, you didn't produce the movie. <laughs> Number two, it, it, it makes it feel like propaganda. And it, it doesn't feel, you know, it could feel like this was, a, uh, you know, sort of a contrived thing. And it wasn't. And, and I don't think that it, it puts the best face forward for the movie. And in response to my email, my, one, of my, one of my producers pressed reply all saying what he said, which caused the whole uproar. To which he apologized for, and I apologized for endlessly, but they took that and and ran with it and ran with it and ran with it and and you know and threatened to shut down the movie and threatened to you know put um, what do they call cease and desist and uh, you know um, all these legal things because of this email and 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 I was in such a vulnerable position I was calling them literally begging like yo he apologized I apologize like this is what was going on I mean Mike it, it must be really hard for you because not only is this the first film you've ever directed not only have you put two and a half years of your life into this but these are people that you admire or you wouldn't be making this movie the whole thing was 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 upsetting and disturbing and and frustrating and at that point frightening because I knew we had something that was good. There was a lot of anticipation about the movie being at Sundance. And then they're like trying to like be producers on the movie and then threatening, we're going to shut down the movie. And, I, and then that John Cassavetes moment came to me, who has been a big inspiration to me as an actor and as, as a call myself an artist. And I looked at myself in the mirror and, 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 and I was like, you ain't shutting down you're not shutting down anything. And I'll tell you one thing, and I told them this. I'm going to be at Sundance with this movie, playing it, whether it's in the festival or not. You're not stopping me. You're not stopping this movie. I'll hand out DVDs. I'm going to Sundance. You're not getting in the way of this. And this is the, this is the uncut version of that situation. And ultimately, they got back on board. And right before Sundance, Tribe Call Quest is not coming to Sundance, but we support the movie. And then Fife wound up coming to Sundance. And now the thing about that is Ali Shaheed Muhammad had prior engagement. He wasn't coming to Sundance no matter what. He was booked to go in Europe. So let me make sure I say he that. He was on tour. I he think. was on tour. And that was booked from the, the, right. the fall. The movie seems like ultimately it's about that love that Dave from De La Soul talked about. It's about fraternal friendship that yeah. like real brotherhood family relationship between yeah. these guys and yeah. it i just i can only imagine that it was that it's hard to be to have to to have yourself in, inserted in there it was very hard it was very hard but you know what i'm not like a like a little you know, wilted flower. You know, I'm not like a delicate. Really, really yeah. Michael Rappaport, you're not. I know a lot of people think that. <laughs> they you think that he's very sensitive and gentle, and you know, and you I, certainly I have, a, have soft, a reputation as a soft. Sp- yeah, I'm like uh, with the Edward Scissorhands. Like, there's a tear in my eye. Um, you know, the most uh, the the thing that makes me be able to sort of, sort of laugh about it um, is that when the movie is screened in front of audiences, when I've been there, it's been just you know, and it's. 
you know, the humor that was found in the movie. Like, there was things that I thought were funny, but, like, th- th- there's so much humor and emotion. And it's only right to me because, you know, Tribe Called Quest music was very emotional. And and the, the emotion that's in the film, it, it's only right. And, and it it's just... You know, it's just like a little, it just worked. It's just worked out. And I'm so proud of the film and all the people that worked with me on the film and that put up with me on the film and that carried me at times where I was like, I, I can't do it. I just, I just, I can't do it. You know, like we had a good team around me. I had a little tribe, you know, making the movie. So it was, it was, it was cool. My, my kids and, you know, and just being patient with me. It's been fun. Well, Michael Rappaport, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I really appreciate the interview and um, your insight to it. It, uh, it was cool. Why, why don't we go out on that Tribe Called Quest song that changed uh, Michael Rappaport's life? Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Michael Rappaport and I spoke last year. Meets Rhymes in Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest is out now on DVD, Blu-ray, and available digitally. Like a tribe does Before this Did you really know What live was Comprehend to the track Force why Cause getting mentions On the tip of the vibe was Rock and roll To the beat Of the funk fuzz Wipe your feet Really good On the rhythm rug If you feel the urge To freak Do the jitterbug Come and spread your arms If you really need a hug Afrocentric living Is a big shrug A life filled with That's what I love A lower plateau Is what we're above If you diss us We won't even think of We'll nip of the doggy Give a big shove This rhythm really fits Like a snug glove Like a box of positives It's a plus love As the child flies High like a dove It's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne This is a show That focuses Mostly on culture recommendations However It is always important To keep up to date With current events Unfortunately, when we called actual journalists, they didn't return our calls, so we've had to settle for getting our news from a sketch comedy group. So, here's the news, as made up by Casper Hauser. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorfenaramine. Angela Snashes is at Barbara's. Our top story tonight, babies may need more sleep than we think. Babies raised in caves, free from the everyday interruptions of modern life, sleep 17 hours a day or more, and their brains thrive, say researchers at Danforth Hospital. What's more, their eyes turn a beautiful milky white, and they're able to capture fish with their mouths. And racehorse names have gotten weirder and longer, won the Kentucky Derby on Saturday. It was the closest finish in Derby history came in second. And the etymology of the word dwarf may be getting a makeover. Linguist Brandon Bain has published a new paper disputing the word's supposed Old Norse root, dweorg. Professor Bain argues that the word dwarf may instead be a combination of two Indo-European words, dwazzle and wharf rat. 
And jubilant inventor Mike Hurler showed off his new baby this weekend, a car that runs on nothing but wind and nuclear energy. The eco-friendly sedan will seat a family of four, requires no maintenance or gas, and will be available soon. During the test, the car melted some people. And was there a letter GOAT in pre-Columbian times? There may just have been, according to an explosive new study by linguists here. Their findings show that an early alphabet of the Lyapo people went like this. A, B, C, D, GOAT, no P. The linguists were stricken by how short the alphabet was and by yellow fever. And a local woman will rent her cats to the highest bidder. Part of a trend called collaborative consumption, Rachel Jenny will rent her cats for $4 an hour to pet lovers who may not be able to keep a cat or just need a little affection or help catching that mouse. She admits that in the 43 days since posting the ads, she has had no takers yet. For her 3-year-old Siamese, I Got the Worms, or her 4-year-old Tabby, Maximum Diabetes. And finally, Garibaldine College will break new ground this fall when they add three new courses of study. The 100-year-old local institution will offer a major in brain tweezlers, a minor in coin collecting, and a new multidisciplinary program focusing on religions of the world called The Devil Has Many Faces. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorfenaramine. Good night. You can find Casper Hauser online at casperhauser.com. Their books include Obama's Blackberry and Weddings of the Times. You probably think of 3D movies as a kind of a gimmick, right? Well, Werner Herzog might be the first director to use the technology in a truly organic and certainly remarkable way. I'll talk to him about his documentary, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Rublik Radio International. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. You know me mostly as a stentorian public radio host. And you probably know me as a cable TV cut-up. Every week on our show, Jordan Jesse Go, I would say that we share a little slice of our hearts. Yeah, and dick jokes. We are both complex and aimless. Leaving you with a empty, dirty feeling after the podcast is over. And a chalky taste in your mouth. Mm-hmm. But if you start to taste pennies, that's not us. That's a heart attack. And remember, a stroke is a brain attack. Yeah. We talk about, like, important stuff that's going on in our lives, like uh, babies and dogs and traveling. With some very impressive guests from the worlds of art and entertainment. Yeah, Sarah Val, Rob Corddry, Kurt Anderson, they've all had to sit through many, many (laughs) dick jokes made by us. It's all online at MaximumFun.org. Just click on Jordan Jesse Go or search for Jordan Jesse Go in your iTunes. You can find our awesome new Bullseye logo. On t-shirts in three colors at maxfunstore.com. Order yours now. That's maxfunstore.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Werner Herzog has always been known for pushing filmmaking to its limits. His 60 feature films in 40 years have reveled in humanity at its extremes. From self-taught naturalist Timothy Treadwell in the documentary Grizzly Man to crack-crazed madman Nicolas Cage in the crazy and fictional Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. I should point out that it's his character that's a crack-crazed madman, as far as I know. In his recent documentary, Herzog has found a new human boundary to push, 
time. Cave of Forgotten Dreams is a 3D look into the Chauvet Cave, home of the earliest known cave paintings in the world. With a tiny crew and jerry-rigged 3D cameras, Herzog looks at some of the first images ever created. The caves are tightly controlled, only open to tiny groups of researchers approved in advance by the French government. It took Herzog years to obtain the permissions necessary to even bring in a skeleton crew. He takes this rare opportunity not just to present to us the beauty of the caves, and they are amazingly beautiful, but to consider what it means to create and how we define our own humanity. In this clip from the film, a researcher explains why the cave paintings are tucked so far back in the cave, and Herzog narrates his first look at a painting of a bear. You see, in, in this big chamber, which is really huge, it's the biggest in the cave, there are no paintings, except right at the end. So this is probably relevant because when the entrance uh, was still open, uh, there must have been some light here. So they put the paintings really in the complete dark. This is a, a cave bear painted in black. The paintings looked so fresh that there were initial doubts about their authenticity. But this picture has a layer of calcite and concretions over it that take thousands of years to grow. This was the first proof that it was not a forgery. Werner Herzog and I spoke last year. So the first thing that struck me when I saw this film, even having read the New Yorker article that it was based upon, was how beautiful the cave paintings were. And I wonder if you knew how beautiful they were before you started looking into the project, like before you... Yeah. Well, I had no idea what was coming at me. Uh, in fact, the New Yorker article uh, by Judy Thurman in a way triggered it. It's not based on it. Based, uh, I would say, <clears throat> is more s something like early in my adolescence when I was 12 years old. I was fascinated by a book on cave paintings and I really wanted to buy the book so badly and I worked in tennis courts as a ball boy just to be able to buy this book and uh, this kind of shudder, this awe, uh, the kind of sense of wonder that I experienced when I was 12 has never left me. So it was somehow dormant. And I was asked, uh, are you interested in doing something about a cave that has been discovered with great cave paintings? I said, what are you telling me? <laughs> yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. I want to do this film without even knowing exactly um, what the Chauvet Cave was all about. Were you Were you able to grasp when you were just a, a teenager, the immensity of the of the time scale? That was probably part of it. Uh, and now the time scale is shifting significantly because from our time uh, back to Lascaux Caves, on, only 13, 14, maybe 15,000 years back in time, it's a shorter distance from us to them than from Lascaux Cave to Chauvet, which is... 35,000 years, 32,000 years back in time. So it's completely mind-boggling and passage of time is uh, inconceivable for us when, when you look at the dating of some of the paintings. Charcoal paintings you can date through radiocarbon dating and we know some of, let's say, the paintings of a woolly mammoth or a reindeer 
was done by one individual and it was completed by someone else, but it was 5,000 years later. It's completely mind-boggling in the kind of completely preserved time capsule. Shui Cave was um, discovered uh, by three discoveries in 1994, a sensational find, and the cave was cons- was completely sealed off by a cataclysmic uh, rock uh, slide, sealed it off in this gorge of the Ardes River. And since then, um, you find fresh tracks of cave bears. And you look at these fresh uh, tracks, and at the same time, we know the cave bear became extinct as a species more than 20,000 years ago. I mean, in in that New Yorker article, there's this little bit at the beginning where she describes that there have been 200 generations between our time and the beginning of recorded history, essentially. And that these cave paintings took place literally thousands of generations before that. And I, I found myself, as I considered that, it, um, it, was, it was almost too big for me to handle. And I started having an emotional reaction mm-hmm. to it when I was, just, I was trying to just be purely yeah. analytical. Well, there's always a sense of awe. <laughs> and I think I pass this on to the audience. But uh, when you speak about generations, uh, when you look at us and my children's generation, who all are into uh, virtual realities on the Internet, who are uh, into video games, invented realities, who have seen reality TV, grew up with it, who have seen digital effects in movies, dinosaurs credibly created. Uh, From one generation, uh, perception of reality has shifted dramatically already. Now you go back in this amount of time, these recesses uh, of history and prehistory and unfathomable depths of time. It's just stunning how um, to imagine how did they see these images? How did they perceive? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Werner Herzog. We're talking about his film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It's a 3D look at the oldest known images made by man, the cave paintings in the Chauvet Cave in France. In this clip, a scientist recounts seeing the images for the first time and the effect that they had on him. The first time I entered to to Chauvet Cave, I had the chance to, to get in during five days. And it was so powerful that every night I was dreaming of lions. And every day was the same uh, shock for me. It was an emotional shock. I mean, I'm a scientist, but a human too. And after five days, I decided not to go back in the cave because I needed time just to relax and take time to... To absorb it? To absorb it, yeah. Yeah. And you dreamt not of paintings of lions, but of real lions? Of both. Of both, definitely, yeah. When you spent time with these paintings and you only had 
sort of short periods of time, and you had yes. a very immense technical task uh, before you in terms of yeah. filming in 3D and in in periods of just a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how spending that time with something that was that old, that was from before, so much before recorded history, where you like lose track even of mm-hmm. the idea of generations and of individual yeah. people, whether that changed how you thought about yourself and and particularly like mortality and and you know religion well all these thoughts uh, are only allowed afterwards you see when <laughs> when you have only one week and you have only 4 hours a day you better go in you work fast you have to perform you have to deliver no matter what and uh, I was only allowed three men with me. And inside the cave, in semi-darkness, only illuminated by a few torches, we had to build and reconfigure our cameras. You see, in 3D, when you have a wide shot, you have to have a certain distance of the levels, a certain distance of the eyes. However, when you are moving much closer, the eyes, the lenses have to move much closer to each other and they even have to squint slightly. So it is high precision technology and you have three guys with you and you have to be very, very quick and it has to function. So it was performing a duty. It was technical work, work and nothing else. So you have to have a tunnel view. Only afterwards you sit back and and you are pondering about uh, uh, where are the origins of the modern human soul. Yes, you are witnessing it. Um, What did uh, these uh, paintings mean for the people at that time? So all this is uh, mysterious and uh, we can only wonder. So what, what kind of thinking did you do beforehand and how did, like taking home these images and looking at them change what you had planned? Well, one of the main considerations was how do I pass on this kind of sense of awe to an audience, which is not easy because in storytelling you tell a story, yes, and it has um, certain rules, it has certain flows, it has certain rhythms, but... uh, a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. How do you, how do you pass that on? Of course, I prepared myself quite well in terms of knowledge of uh, prehistoric art, not only of that cave, so that I had an argument, I had a real discourse with the scientists. I never act as an interviewer. I have no prepared questions, but I have knowledge and I'm... Uh, of course, limited knowledge, but uh, I'm having discourses with them. And all of a sudden it becomes much more lively than just question, answer, question, answer. I knew that part of the limitations on the time that you could spend in this cave were related to the fact that, um, you know, any human activity inside disturbs something that can never be undisturbed. Yes. Um, So it's not a caprice yeah. by the scientists or by the Ministry of Culture to let you in. Uh, it's, uh, of course, time constraint. And also, you see, you can never touch anything. You really never, ever step off the metal walkway. Um, 
in one part where you have charcoal paintings uh, on the ground there are faint traces of uh, charcoal powder you are not even allowed to sneeze if you sneeze you blow all this charcoal dust away you blow the evidence away that has not been scientifically uh, checked out yet what I didn't know was that another reason that you're only allowed to spend a certain amount of time in the caves is for your own health that these caves because of the radon and mm -hmm. carbon dioxide literally poison you a little bit while you're inside yes uh, well it's number one it's only one cave but it has two main branches at the end one of these uh, branches is uh, slightly lower and through um, the limestone which is quite porous uh, co2 seeps through coming actually from the root of roots of trees and there's a fairly high concentration which increases later on when later in spring when leaves are growing and in summer so the scientists would only converge and gather uh, late in in spring let's say uh, march early april and that's it um and of course there are precautions um Uh, they have oxygen masks, and there's a very strict protocol how to behave if, let's say, one man faints. Who is going to carry him out, and if the one who carries him out is also fainting? So there's a sequence of events uh, which is very strictly rehearsed and set down in protocol, but it's not that dangerous, let's face it. Uh, but, however, I must say, after 40, 50 minutes, I felt woozy, And I sat down and I, I, I knew this was enough. You better move out. And in other, but of course there are guards with you and, and they would immediately do the right thing. It's, it's interesting to me that you're, that you're both in the film and in practice in, these, in this cave, you have to set up these kind of, um, these, these intellectual structures that allow you to deal with the enormity of something that is too enormous to actually deal with directly. Just like we have to, you know, we have to figure out a way to deal with the fact that there are thousands upon thousands of generations, yeah. which is just more than we can manage in our head. You also have to have a system to manage the idea of what happens if someone collapses. Well, uh, yes, but, but it's, again, it's not that serious. And, and of course, <laughs> Uh, there's parts where you have radon gas, a radioactive gas. It only becomes uh, troublesome if you spend a real long time in there at these places because it has an accumulative effect in your lungs, otherwise not so wild. But how do we approach this whole project? And of course, I'm not approaching it uh, with as an accountant of facts, which you see a lot in, in uh, documentaries today's. I go in as a poet, and my understanding is the understanding of poetry. And even if you have a wild end with um, albino mutant crocodiles, it's just to intrigue an audience to follow me into the wildest poetry and the wildest uh, imaginations of science fiction almost. Werner, thank you so much for taking the time. You're very welcome. 
Cave of Forgotten Dreams is available now on DVD, Blu-ray, and on Netflix Instant. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on this show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. Last year, the New York Post wrote that Sly Stone was living in a camper van in Los Angeles. At the time, he told the reporter, I just don't want to return to a fixed home. I must keep moving. If you're a casual Sly fan, you probably know about songs like Dance to the Music or Hot Fun in the Summertime. At a time when music was splintering into black and white, Sly was holding youth culture together through sheer force of will. Sly and the Family Stone's hit records were as joyous as any pop music that's ever been recorded. By the early 70s, though, that had started to curdle. Sly stopped showing up for gigs. He started using cocaine, then PCP. Most of the band quit, and by the time he started working on his album Fresh in 1973, he was recording mostly by himself. He compulsively retracked instrumentals, playing almost every instrument alone in the studio. You can feel it on the record. Fresh is lonely and muddy and beautiful. It's the record of a brilliant man alienated from the world. You can hear the man in the van through all the muck and the funk. The centerpiece is one of the greatest songs Sly ever recorded, If You Want Me to Stay. It's a love song, I guess. He wrote it as an apology after a fight with his wife. But it's a love song by a man who's resigned to being alienated from love by his own worst qualities. Or maybe his own best qualities. With Sly, it's hard to tell. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go, and then you'll know for me to stay. I got to be me. Sly Stone worked so hard to bring the world together. Then, he worked so hard to drive himself away from it. There's a part of me that wants Sly back. There's a part of me that thinks that he's right where he's got to be. When you shape me again, I hope you have been the kind of person you really are now. Wish I could get the message over to you now. Ah! 
That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White, our editor. Our intern is Joe Molinelli. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I'm Jesse Thorne. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.